Welcome everybody. Thanks very much indeed for, for turning out on a Monday evening for this uh, critically important meeting. Uh, it's good to see you all. Meetings uh, like this, uh, in my view, depend on the quality of the debate after the speakers have stimulated our minds. So we look forward to a good exchange amongst us all after our introductory speakers. Uh, my name is Doug Nichols. I'm General Secretary of the General Federation of Trade Unions, which was established by the TUC in 1899. Been doing all sorts of good things since. Um, one of our main concerns in recent years has been to ensure that uh, trade union and working class education retains its core, because the core has been ripped out of working class education over the last decades. The core, once upon a time, was politics, philosophy, economics, and working class history. And you won't find many trade unions currently having those central subjects which inspire and motivate us and connect us with the past and make us think about the future as part of their programmes. But the GFTU, we've sought to restore them and keep them alive as much as possible. And in the current circumstances that we're in politically, it seems to us uh, no more important thing to do than to restore a working class sense of what the political economy really is. So we've had a range of seminars, a range of publications, and we're delighted to be associated with this, this new one tonight on the, the central buzzword that's there that's causing so much misery for our people. So we look forward to a debate this evening, and uh, we've got three maybe four brilliant speakers to start us off. We have got apologies from two of our trade union uh, comrades for this evening. You'll appreciate the intensity of the struggle that there is uh, in the RMT. So Eddie Dempsey is not with us, unfortunately, and you'll appreciate also the struggle in the uh, food and allied industries where Sarah Woolley is. So they simply can't be with us. I've known both of them a long time, and they don't miss meetings lightly. So... Uh, Solidarity with them this evening. But Costas Lapovitsis, uh, Professor of Economics at SOAS, University of London, will start us off giving a general uh, and international overview of what this phrase, the cost of living, really is, what are the causes and what are the cures. And James Medway, uh, who's a council member at the Progressive Economics Forum and also the host of the um, Macrodose uh, podcast will uh, make that a bit more specific, relate some of that to the situation in Britain. Uh, we'll then have uh, Laura Smith, former MP, now the political officer for the Communication Workers Union. Um, dare say you will have seen the vote there last week, 95% in favour of continuity of the action. And importantly, uh, the union ain't going to settle that one until all of their hundreds and hundreds of victimised activists and stewards uh, have been reprieved. So welcome to Laura uh, as well this evening. She will look at some of the political solutions and some of the ideas that we've been debating together in a variety of uh, exchanges that we've had about how we can get out of this deliberately created anti-working class mess that they've caused after 40 years of neoliberalism, we're now in this kind of whiplash where the crash uh, is becoming something that could break our necks if we're not very careful. So, let's go, let's have a good debate. Welcome to Costas, first of all.
thank you very much to um, Doug for the introduction. It's a real pleasure to do this, to see such an audience, uh, trade unionists, activists, students, people who want to do something about this crisis that's befallen us. Uh, it's the right moment to do it. There's nothing more topical and more pressing than the cost of living crisis. Doug is a very hard um, master here, and um, he's only given me 15 minutes or so. I am Greek, so I'll take a little bit of time uh, extra. Um, but uh, I've got to get on with it as quickly as I can, because time is short. Um, and I've got a lot to talk about. So, cost of living crisis, right? What is the cost of living crisis? On one level, it's simple. It's what we say in that booklet of ours. Um, very pithy phrase. Prices are too high, wages are too low. That's basically what it is. Prices are rising, wages are not rising uh, similarly. So, you have a crisis. You have a cost of living crisis. If you think about it for a minute longer, you will see that, of course, what we're talking about is a crisis of poverty. Fundamentally, it's a crisis of poverty. Um, Poverty has been with us for a long time in this country. It stands out. It's actually exceptional in Europe and across the world. It's actually poverty of working people, working poverty. It's not poverty of pensioners. It's not poverty of people who uh, are no longer in the labor force. It's poverty of people who are full-time workers, working, working poverty. And uh, it's poverty which we observe when unemployment is not very high. Typically, you think of poverty rising when people are unemployed. Well. Contemporary capitalism has created the situation in which unemployment can be, official unemployment can be uh, low, and poverty, severe poverty, can be among us. And this poverty translates into energy poverty, food poverty, health poverty, you name it, it's with us. But uh, the cost of living crisis is also more than that, not just a poverty crisis, it's also a crisis of inequality. Because, of course, not everybody is affected by, uh, in the same way by the poverty crisis. It's a crisis of inequality, which you can see in the crassest, most manifest way, because profits are up. Profits are up. There are big businesses that are making extraordinary profits, which they are distributing to the shareholders, even as we speak. Um, so what you get is... Um, a sharpening of income inequality, which was already very high in this country. This country was already exceptional in Western Europe and elsewhere because of the policies of the last few years. Right at the far end of the spectrum in terms of inequality, things are becoming worse as a result of prices rising, uh, wages not rising um, in the same way. Put it all together, and what have we got? A sense in the country that things no longer work. It's a broader sense that one can perceive. Things no longer work. Things are not functioning. Not like they used to. They're not functioning at all. That the country is malfunctioning. Uh, transport doesn't work. Schooling doesn't work. The NHS doesn't work. The government doesn't work. There's a sense that there's a generalized crisis which people condense into the cost of living crisis, I think. But I won't talk about the broader thing. I want to focus on the cost of living crisis, on the inflation crisis, let's call it that, because it's also that. And the thing to note here is that it might be very bad in this country, in our country here, it might be very bad for our people here, 
but it's, it's across the Western world. It isn't just Britain. You have a crisis of inflation across much of what we might call the core of the world economy. United States, France, Germany, Spain, a number of countries which are developed, core countries of the capitalist system globally, have got inflation pressures, severe inflation pressures. So, properly speaking, it's a crisis of neoliberal capitalism of the present day particularly bad in Britain, for reasons which I will discuss in a minute, but not just Britain. It isn't just us. We are just probably the worst case. Um, where does it come from? Now, we can spend a lot of time talking about immediate issues. The oil market, the gas market, food markets. All that is very important, and I'll say a few things, and James will say more about it uh, as we move along. But clearly, if it's a problem of this type across the world, there's something else that's going on, something deeper that's going on. And it is this that I want to talk about and give you the broad parameters of what we think drives this crisis, which we've summed up in this booklet of ours, which we want to see read widely, which is why it's produced in that way. What's the key problem then? What's the fundamental problem? What What's the common factor in all this? Well, it's very simple in our judgment. The problem starts with production. The problem starts with the side of supply. The problem starts with the, the productive mechanism uh, which we can observe in this country and in other core countries across uh, Western Europe, across the Western world. The problem then is a problem of production, supply. That's where inflation comes from. Um, and you can see that problem we've given evidence in a variety of ways. Investment, in other words, improving the productive capacity, has been appalling in this country and in many other core countries for years. The last 10 years in this country, investment has been atrocious. Productivity growth, I know we want to be careful when we talk about productivity because that's what the bosses will come back to at all times. Trade unionists know that very well. But productivity makes the system go. Productivity growth has been atrocious again. Britain is the worst. Why? Because investment is weak. If investment is weak, productivity will not grow. Profitability, on average, again, very poor. Every indicator of the production side will tell you that things are malfunctioning. Capitalism in this country and elsewhere doesn't work on the side of production, the side of supply. But you don't just see it on the side of business, as it were, investment, productivity, profitability, and so on, you see it on the side of labor as well. Because the most important element of the production side is, of course, labor. Workers, working people. That's ultimately what produces um, wealth. If you look at the labor side, then you will see bad jobs, terrible jobs. I mentioned previously that unemployment is low. Well, yeah, but who wants jobs like that? Who wants jobs that are badly paid, precarious, and so on? And people leave the labor market. People leave the labor, the, the, the labor force. They weaken supply. What does this tell you altogether? I haven't got time to go into it, but I'll sum it up. It tells us that contemporary neoliberal financialized capitalism, the kind of capitalism we've been living through, the kind of capitalism that we've got in this country and elsewhere, 
cannot deliver anymore in terms of producing and creating profits. The supply side, the accumulation side, doesn't function the way it used to. It's reached an end. This is apparent, this has been apparent for 15 years now, since the great crisis of 2007-2009. The whole period is a period of stagnation, effectively. Things are not growing. The system is not moving the way um, it used to. Weak, very weak um, production at the core. That's one part. There's another part, which also matters for inflation. And that is, in some ways, even more relevant and interesting. While this has been happening, production weakening in the West, in the core of the system, the productive mechanism of contemporary capitalism has been spreading its tentacles across the world. Production for the world market takes place through now global production chains. Vast production chains dominated by multinational enterprises, producing across borders, shifting goods across oceans, dominating the production chain uh, the way they want to, shifting profits to cross tax jurisdictions, managing the mechanism so that they can extract as much profit as they can by exploiting people across the world, taking advantage of low wages and so on. To do that, they also mobilize finance. So you get global finance circling the globe, collaborating with these vast production chains to dictate terms to the, to, to the world market. That is how contemporary capitalism works globally. Britain is very much part of it. British enterprises take very much part in this whole uh, business. It is one of the most internationalized capitals in the world. Now put your mind to it. What does this mean? Obviously it's terrible for the environment. You shift the goods back and forth across the seas, across borders and so on. Um, the, the, the footprint is vast. But it's more than that. Such a system is very fragile. Incredibly fragile. It's fragile because it relies on very low um, inventories. It, is very, it, it relies on shifting goods when they, in, just in time and so on. Any kind of shock, and then it's completely disrupted. We've seen that time and time again. Now put these two things together, and what have you got? Weak production and fragile production. What have we had in this decade? Two enormous shocks. COVID-19 and the war in Ukraine. Both of these fell on the supply side. Both of these disrupted the supply side. Both of, this, of these shocks increased the weakness of supply, disrupted the mechanism, disrupted the chains that I, that, that I summed up for you, made, made the production side of capitalism even weaker than before. An enormous crisis began to appear on the side of production in the last two, three years. Who dealt with it? Now, in the years of neoliberalism, people kept telling us the state doesn't matter. The state has taken a back seat. Big business dictates terms. Yeah, it's a very good theory. But in practice, when crisis hits, it's the state that steps in. We've known that for a very long time. And that's exactly what happened. Core states intervened to deal with COVID, to deal with the Ukraine shocks, and what did they do? They boosted demand. They didn't deal with supply, that was weak. They didn't intervene there. They didn't change 
property rights. They didn't tell big business what to do. They didn't set terms there to try and improve the supply side. They intervened on the demand side. How did they do it? First, they forgot about austerity. Remember austerity? It's coming back, of course. But remember austerity? Remember George Osborne, those of you who were old enough to do it? Ten years we spent with George Osborne uh, at the Treasury telling us that austerity is an excellent idea. What a disaster. What? And it was a policy disaster. They chose to do it. When the shocks came, they forgot about it. They discovered the magic money tree. It was behind the sofa. They borrowed and they spent. Fiscal expenditure, driven by borrowing, increased a lot, enormously, to support business and to keep people in employment, furlough and so on. What else did they do? They created money. Because the real power of the state in the core countries of contemporary capitalism relies on money, fiat money, the creation of money by the central bank. So they created money. Fiscal spending on the one hand, money creation on the other, driving rates of interest down. The combination gave a boost to demand, which was very substantial. Two and two makes four. If supply is weak, if supply is disrupted, if supply cannot deliver because capitalism malfunctions and the state boosts demand, you're going to get price increases. You're going to get the price level rising. That's what you're going to get. It's very well known. Didn't take Karl Marx to point that out. John Maynard Keynes pointed that out a long time ago. That's what happens. And that's indeed what happened. Prices began to rise. Then the music started. Because when that happens, what obtains is a vast distributional struggle. Why? It's straightforward. If prices begin to rise, businesses, especially the big ones, not the small and medium enterprises, but the big ones, will seek to increase the prices of their output, to keep their profits going. They will raise their prices. Small and medium businesses will not be able to do it so much. If workers don't match the increases, it's clear what's going to happen. Profits will rise. Profits will rise proportionately. Why? Because income will come out of the pockets of workers and into the pockets of capitalists. It's an income transfer. It's a clear, simple income transfer. If wages don't keep pace with price increases, income shifts from the pockets of workers into the pockets of businesses. And that's exactly what's happening in this country. A country hit by poverty in the way that I outlined before is now witnessing an income transfer from the poor to the rich, which is of historic proportions. It's a disgrace. It is an absolute disgrace that such a thing can happen in this country or in any other developed country, uh, to be absolutely frank uh, uh, about it. That is what is at issue. I know uh, Doug is having kittens over there <laughs> to tell me to speed up. But in a sense, that's what's happening in the, in the core countries. It varies. Some places are worse than others, but that's the general story. This country is worse than most. It's worse than most because the supply side is weaker than most because we've had 40 years of neoliberal experiments. We've had 10 years, of, well, nearly 10 years of George Osborne. That alone would have been enough. We've had, uh, we've had disruption of production uh, in incredible ways. We've lost productive capacity in a number of sectors. Give a boost to demand, our inflation is being worse 
uh, than most other countries. The impact on working people has been worse than in most other countries. The British people were already unequal and poor more than uh, elsewhere in Western Europe. What should we do about it? In some ways, the answer is clear, and we spell it out. The first thing that must happen is that the income transfer from poor to rich must stop. It's imperative. And all this talk on, in, in, in the media and so on, if workers demand wage increases, that's obviously the worst thing that can possibly happen in the world. It's completely the opposite. The income transfer, transfer must stop. It is very, very important that wage increases are at least as high as inflation, and in places in which wages have been declining over the years, they must be even higher. People must make sure that their disposable income, their living standards are maintained. Increases in wages are the most reliable way for doing that. So, wage increases, it's clear. What else? Price controls. Price controls because unless there are price controls, enterprises alone will not stop jacking prices up. They will do it because they want to make the extra profit. Expecting big business to show social responsibility, not to increase prices, to show an understanding towards the standing, towards the situation of working people and so on, is just nonsense. They won't do it. They'll increase their prices because they want to make profits and they want to distribute the profits to their um, shareholders. In other words, the price mechanism alone would never do it. We need to control it. We need control over prices. We need to set ceilings. We need to restrict uh, way, the way prices work in energy, in food, and elsewhere. Both of these things, though, are basically mechanisms to deal with the immediate impact, right? the immediate pressures at the cost of living crisis. They don't go to the root of it, which, as I said to you from the beginning, is the weakness of supply. The malfunctioning of global capitalism, Britain being particularly bad. If we really want to deal with what has caused the cost of living crisis, that's where we've got to go. We need policies that will begin to deal with the malfunctioning production side of this country. We need policies that will reverse the 40 years of neoliberal nonsense that has destroyed so much productive capacity in this country. We need to think seriously. We need programs, we need to debate it among ourselves uh, about what to propose with regard to public investment, with regard to um, welfare provision, with regard to how productivity would increase and what education should do in order to increase productivity. We need longer-term discussions and longer-term measures to deal with the deep malfunctioning um, of the British economy, which we all experience in a variety uh, of ways. That needs discussion, but more than discussion, it needs something else. And I will finish with this, I promise you. We need, we need to work out who's going to do that. And we need to agree among ourselves who's going to do it. It's a big ask. So who's going to do it? When I look at the political terrain of the country, as well as the political terrain in the rest of Europe and in the United States, I must say, I don't see any political forces that can be relied upon to engage in such a quest. I cannot say it. Politics has declined during the same period. It doesn't speak for working people. It doesn't protect their interests. It doesn't put them at the forefront. And it doesn't think about the structural transformation that Britain and other economies need. It accepts the world as it is, by and large. 
but not everybody in the public arena. The thing that gives me hope, the optimistic thing, is that trade unions in this country are not like that at the moment. They are behaving very differently. That's where the initiative is coming from. That's where the forces that will make for a change along the lines that are spelled out could come from. That's where hope lies. The strike wave in this country the last few months is the most hopeful thing that has happened in a very long time. It is the most hopeful thing for dealing with the cost of living crisis in the broadest sense. We need a debate. We need arguments. We need to engage in public discussion about how to do it. We don't have all knowledge. Nobody has all, all the knowledge. We need honest exchange of opinions and ideas on precisely what is necessary in the various sectors of the economy um, and across the country in order to deal with this catastrophe that has befallen us. That's what we try to contribute to. That's what this book is about. And I invite you all to discuss it further. Thank you. to GFTU and to Progressive Economics Forum for inviting me here uh, this evening and to James and Laura obviously for this event and look I'm an economic expert but I think one thing that politicians and the trade union movement need to challenge and this is why this book is so absolutely timely is this fallacy that it's workers fighting for wage increases that are pushing up inflation it's a fight that we're having in Parliament. It's a fight that's been happening in the media. It's a fight that's happening in terms of taking on those vested interests in the country who actually have one goal, and that's to maximise their profits at the expense of ordinary working people. And this book, in good GFTU terms, talks about that in very plain English. The reality for most workers in this country, especially workers in the public sector, but not just the public sector, is that for most people, wages have been stagnant for well over a decade, in some cases the best part of two decades. The reality is that wages have not been rising, and yet, of course, inflation is rising, and rising at an often completely unaffordable rate. I'll give you an example. <coughs> two weeks ago in my constituency service, a young woman came to see me who had two children. She was a primary school teacher. She had been made homeless because the landlord had jacked the rent in her property absolutely through the roof. In fact, it was so bad that she was going from one viewing to another viewing to try and find somewhere to be able to rent, turning up and finding that she was outbid by other people trying to find rental uh, properties uh, to go into. What kind of situation do we live in? We're not just the poorest in society. But people in professions like teaching literally cannot afford to put a roof over their head. 
and the accommodation that my local council founder was absolutely appalling. You know, you could get better accommodation for people in Pentonville Prison than in the place that she's been put into that was called a hotel. And every single week, those stories about the real impact of inflation, the real impact of wage cuts in real terms for most workers, are what I hear in my constituency surgeries. And the good thing about this book is, in plain terms, it explains, and this is an argument that all of us across every part of our movement have got to make, and we have to force politicians, and we have to force media commentators, no matter how much the odds are stacked against us, to attack this argument. Because every time we fight the debate about the economy on the Tories' territory, we are bound to lose. There is no sports game in the world. You can play the entire town in someone else's half and expect them to score a winning goal. It's just not possible. And one of the things we have to do, and part of this, this book is important, is to challenge that narrative, is to move the debate on the economy so that people understand the real reasons for those inflationary rises that are impacting people so badly. When you look at nurses, they've had, in real terms, a £10,000 decrease in their wages. It's a cut, essentially. So when they're asking for 19%, in my view, that is not at all unreasonable. That is just to bring them up to where they should be in terms of those levels of inflation that have happened year on year. And if we look at every single sector, the level of industrial dispute and dis industrial disharmony is breaking out. Even today, junior doctors voting 77% to go on strike on a huge, huge turnout amongst their membership. I think only 713 people voted against, 36,500 people voted in favour. We're in a situation where a union, the RCN, never in its entire time had balloted its workers to go on strike. It's now preparing for the biggest wave of industrial action in the NHS with three days of strikes. Now that is going to cause major problems in the NHS. And this is a war of wills I'll talk a little bit more about in a second. We're returning to that idea that workers demanding actually a fair wage, not even a huge increase, but one that just actually allows them to exist and to live in the current country that we have. It's not them that are to blame for these inflationary rises. It's a scale of profits that companies in this country are reaping. If you look at the top 350 companies, as it says in this book, on the FTSE 100, their combined profits since 2019, that's post-pandemic, have gone up by over 70%. That is an astonishing figure. That is a multi-billion pound figure. And we all know the examples, the outrageous examples, you know, whether it be BP or Shell, they've got enough money and profits now to go down slightly further in solving the climate crisis. But what they won't do is actually to make a formula where that can actually be repaid in some way to people in this country to begin to lift them out of energy poverty. The priorities are not just wrong, they're deliberately wrong. And this is the narrative that we need to challenge. In so many sectors, so many of those companies are boosting now record profits. They are the reason that prices are rising in so many parts of our economy and in types of goods and services that so many people want to buy and need just to get by on a daily basis. And so getting that argument, getting hold of this book, whether it's in your workplace, whether it's in your university, or whether it's us in Parliament making this argument, it has to happen and it needs to be challenged directly head on. And i tell you this, you know, I saw um, the General Secretary of ASLEF Union this morning for a meeting, and we know, 
One of the reasons, whether it be ASDEF or RMT, that they are attacking rail unions, they are attacking heavily unionised parts of our economy, is because these ministers, these Tory ministers, have an agenda. You've got Grant Shapps behind it, the master of puppets, pulling the strings. He's the person making the decisions. Because be under no illusions, this is an orchestrated war on working people. They don't want to set a deal in any of these sectors that would be acceptable to the majority of members, whether it be firefighters, teachers, rail workers, nurses, you name it, they don't want to do it. And they're frightened. They're frightened that if they have to come to an agreement that will be seen as a victory for the trade union movement, it will have a domino effect across all of the economy. Because we are now hitting a time, as I said earlier, where people that would be considered to be in fairly well-off professions are now voting in overwhelming numbers for strike action. You're talking millions of people now, in one way or another, engaging in the trade union movement and actually saying, we've had enough, we're not taking any more of this absolute BS from this government, their lies about the economy. Everyone knows that they've ripped us off and ripped us off and ripped us off again. We see people that are potentially, allegedly, criminals in the House of Lords the contracts they've had, the money that's been given to their cronies at our expense. I've never known a time in my lifetime when people are so angry about the situation they are in, the unfairness of it. And so I think it's important to have a little bit of hope. You know, I famously like going on picket lines. And what I would say to you is go to your picket lines. Go and show your support for those workers. Because it's tough. When you lose a day's wage, when you're not in a very well-paid job, or any particular job, given the cost of inflation and house prices and food prices and fuel prices and energy prices and rent prices are so high, everyone is hurting at the moment, apart from the super-rich. But show your solidarity. Go and show your support. Because I believe that actually the trade union movement will prevail. And as people have said, as Douglas just said, we know that actually there are alternatives, sensible alternatives, that would actually transform our economy. If we brought forward sectoral collective bargaining on the level that many of these European countries that the government are falsely comparing us against when they talk about anti-strike legislation. This weekend, by the way, you know, many European trade union leaders called out the government for their absolute pack of lies over the anti-trade union legislation. We are already an outlier. We are a country more akin to somewhere like Singapore or Turkey or even Russia in its attacks on organised workers' institutions. That is the reality of the British government at the moment. And we need to call them out. And we need to make that case. And we need to stand shoulder to shoulder with trade unionists and using the knowledge and the expertise of our movement brought together in books like this to go forward and be confident in making those arguments. And believe me, you're going to have my support all the way to do that, to make sure the politicians that matter actually listen and we challenge head on, because this is a struggle of our lifetimes. It's the biggest wave of industrial dispute since the 1980s. And we have no choice. We must win and we will win. Thanks very much, Sam. I understand Sam's organising a launch of the book in Parliament as well, so we're going to up the ante there. Our next speaker is one of the uh, joint authors of the book, James Medway, who I introduced earlier. Welcome, James. All right, thank you. And thank you, um, Sam. 
slightly unsettling thing when people clap before you've said anything and then you have to compare with what happens by the time you finish. Um, I wanted to pick up on something Sam said. So, well, I'm going to pick up on what Sam and Costas both said, but something Sam said I think is very pertinent in this, which is uh, the domino effect. The idea that is out there, uh, and I'll come on to where you can see it out there, that if you, the government, this government right now, um, concede, as they will see it, uh, a decent pay rise to one group of workers, it'll suddenly turn into a load of other workers also demanding a decent pay rise. That's their biggest single fear. And you could see this last week in the Financial Times, which, you know, if you're a sort of, I have to say, probably sort of aged lefty by now, you always get used to referring to it as the boss's paper. It's the place you go and read if you want to find out, in this case, what the Treasury is thinking. And the Treasury has let it be known to the journalists at the Financial Times that they won't allow anything more than a 5% pay increase in the public sector. Um, because they think that if they give more than 5% to any public sector trade unionists, it will spark off a load of demands, not only in the rest of the public sector, but in the private sector as well. That if people see that whoever it is, it doesn't mean nurses, whoever, gets 5% or more than 5%, there'll be a whole load of other people also saying, well, we want at least what they got to meet the rate of inflation. And they can't possibly do this because of the inflationary impact of suddenly having to pay a load of people in the private sector what they've offered to somebody in the public sector. It's a classic, in other words, divide and rule that they want. And if you take this government that since 2010 has actively sought to repress wages in the public sector, that has held back the pay for teachers or nurses or whoever you want to find, to an extraordinary extent. And it is now saying the most you can get is 2% or 3%, but inflation still is, on the last set of figures, 10.1%, the highest, almost the highest speed since the early 1980s. It's just classic divide and rule to try and say these people will not get that because we are frightened about the impact that this will have on everyone else. And the excuse they give is that if they have to pay everyone else, it will lead automatically to inflation. And I think one of the things we want to do in the book, and one of the things that Sam also picked up on, and one of the things we should have absolute confidence with challenging, is the argument that wage rises lead to price increases, leads to more inflation. Because this is the nub of the hard argument that we're now up against. Because I think Costas gave a, a very clear description of what the real causes of inflation are. Why it is that we suddenly have rising prices. Where does the cost of living crisis come from? And actually, almost anyone has a sort of innate common sense to this, which is that prices are too high and your wages, your income, is too low. And if you grasp that much, you've grasped about 95% of what the cost of living crisis is. But the bit that never gets discussed occasionally in the Financial Times. Occasionally you might get a whisper of it in the BBC. The bit that never gets discussed in terms of wages and incomes being too low, prices being too high, is that what's happening to the bit in the middle? That somebody must be pocketing that difference. And they are. 
on a record-breaking scale, that Shell, BP, the oil companies are making record-breaking profits. But it's not just the oil companies, it's the entire large corporate sector in places like Britain, like America, they're making record-breaking profits. It is a direct transfer from one group of people, which is most of us, to another group of people, which is a very small number right at the top. That's the cost of living crisis, is that transfer of wealth upwards on the basis of rising prices and the suppression of wages. So if the government, for instance, or the governor of the Bank of England turns around and says, well, we can't have wages increasing too much, it will cause prices to rise, prices are already rising, wages are not going up nearly as much, that is why profits have exploded, and it is not because wages are going up, the prices are going up. Everything about this is the wrong way around. And then the solutions that they propose for all of this zero in on exactly the same non-existent problem. That if you find the governor of the Bank of England and the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England, which sets the interest rate that the Bank of England uses, that every month or two months or whenever they meet, there's great hoo-ha in the press about what are they going to do with the interest rate that they set, the base rates for the Bank of England. Are they going to put it up? Are they going to pull it? Well, they're not going to pull it down at the minute, but are they going to put it up? And how much impact will this have? And there's a great hoo-ha about it. And the governor of the Bank of England gets up and says something along the lines of, we decided to put this interest rate up because we have to take on inflation and this is how we think we're doing this. Never at any point is it really laid out properly, unless you push these people, what they expect that mechanism for restraining inflation to be. And you have to remember at this point that if your belief is that wages going up is what causes inflation... Your mechanism for restraining inflation is going to look very much like we must not make wages go up, or even better, we shall make them go down. And the reason that you start to think about pushing up the interest rate that the Bank of England controls, the base rate, which causes other interest rates to increase with it, is because you very deliberately want to get as close as you can without causing a depression, but at least bring on a recession. And why do you do that? If you push these people, they'll tell you this story. You do that because you want to intimidate workers with the threat of unemployment into demanding lower wages, or not demanding any wage rise at all, or being so desperate you'll take any work you can get. That's the mechanism. That's what's happening when the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee, all very respectable, all very nice, reports on the BBC and everywhere else, are deciding what to do with interest rates. That's the mechanism they want to operate. That's what they believe is going to end this crisis. Uh, end the crisis of inflation. And every so often you get someone who's, you know, I, I I'm not quite sure what got into the guy's head. You, you do wonder when you see these people sometimes. But Lawrence Summers, former chief economic advisor to Barack Obama, you know, one of the great and the good of the American economic profession, for what it's worth, chose to spell this all out for viewers of CNN. You can go and find the video, and I recommend watching it for a reason I'll come back to that Lawrence Summers was sitting there saying, yeah, we want interest rates to go up because wage rises are too high at the minute. We have to suppress wage rises. We have to intimidate people with unemployment. I paraphrase, but not very much. And that's why interest rates need to go up much higher than they are because a recession will actually restrain wage rises. Now, he says all of this sitting with this staggering lack of self-awareness, or maybe he just doesn't care by this point, on what appears to be a tropical island merrily saying that everybody else is paid too much 
that's causing inflation. We've got to make sure they're paid less. It's nice to have someone who just tell you this straight out and to do it with such a, you know, a graphic example of what the problem is here, because that is the problem. The problem is our wages are not enough and other people want to carry on doing quite well out of this. That when you start to say, we're going to increase interest rates, it is not a neutral instrument. It's not something there that you're just going to you know, manage the economy and this is something we can all agree on. Do we want the economy to be managed? Yes, we do. It's an instrument that is intended to worsen that situation for most people because this is the belief that this is how you get rid of inflation. And the bit they don't talk about is this is how you get rid of inflation whilst protecting those enormous profits at the top. So the solution you get offered, as if the, this was a, a technical process, as if this was just you know, clever people sitting around scratching their chins and deciding whether or not to have an interest rate, this technical process is completely political. It is a political choice, like everything else in economics, to decide that the solution you want to go for on inflation is to say, we're going to drive up interest rates, which, by the way, means a load of people have uh, higher mortgages, which, by the way, down the line, means you get a worse recession than you would have had otherwise. It's a political choice to do this, and however much it is disguised as a technical decision, it is a political choice in favour of the people who are doing well because there are people doing well out of the cost of living crisis at the expense of everyone else who is not. It's always the politics that matters in economics, and the solutions that we tend to get presented with are exactly a part of that, uh, of that situation. So the question, I suppose, is something Costas and, and Sam have both touched on already, is well, what do you do instead? If what we're being presented with as a sort of technical managerial decision and you know the clever people are going to sit around and sort this out for us and I'm sorry if that means a load more of you are unemployed or you're just getting paid less and less because actually we want to solve this in favour of the people who are doing well out of the cost of living crisis. What do you do instead? The first one, and the most obvious one, is that wages need to increase. If wages are not driving inflation, and you can see this most obviously by the way, like inflation right now in this country, is coming from big events in the rest of the world, very largely. And if you start saying, oh, okay, we, we're not going to pay nurses so much here, that doesn't mean that Qatar that you're buying natural gas from cut their prices to compensate. That's not how the thing works. You're just paying nurses less, and you still have to pay for the gas, which is massively increased in price. All the food you're buying from the rest of the world. And by the way, if you look at the figures right now, yes, natural gas prices are falling off from what they were in the summer, that there is more supply available, that the extraordinarily large profits are not quite as extraordinarily large as they used to be, but the price of food is rising rapidly, some 16% uh, year on year in the last month, and is expected to carry on rising into the future. And this is, like gas, another essential. You can't do very well without eating. You might be able to turn all your lights off, turn the heating off, you cannot do this for any extended period of time if you don't eat. So it is another squeeze on people's living standards rolling into the year. Now, it may not be BP making all-time highest record profits they've ever made. It'll be some giant angry business instead. It's the same principle at work in all of this. So, of course, wages need to go up because that isn't where inflation is coming from. 
And by putting wages up, you're going to do something which is going to seem terribly offensive to at least a few people. But you may well find that profits start to come down. And that's actually going to be a good thing if it's Shell and BP or some giant agribusiness or any other of the massively profitable corporations, the various banks uh, are issuing their profit statements over this week. If those profits are coming down and wages and incomes, pensions, benefits, everything else is going up, this is a good way to start to resolve uh, the cost of living crisis. But we're also going to, I think, have to do something that gets beyond just saying wages should go up. If we're looking at a world, and this is what's lurking behind all of this, that is increasingly subject to shocks, to big disturbing events like COVID-19 or like the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but in particular, I think the sort of ecological shocks that we've seen over last year, extreme heat across much of the world, damaging crop production, therefore putting up the prices that can be charged for food. That if you're looking at a world where inflation is coming from these big, often ecological crises, then we're going to also have to look at a world where price controls and restraints on how much you can charge for those essential items that are now being subject to these price shocks, that are now seeing people make massive profits out of them, you're going to have to have a serious conversation about restraining the price of that. And it's a measure of how far the crisis has already progressed in the space of 12 months or so. That discussion has moved from something where, you know, the great and good of the economics profession, the Paul Krugmans of this world, and now being forced to take discussion about price control seriously because the inflation we're getting now, mediated or seen through or transmitted by these huge profit-making capitalist structures is one that's coming from a fundamental instability. And inflation like that, you're going to have to try and control and manage the price rises in essentials. Wholesale food, energy we already try and control the price of, rent, particularly if you're in London or any other, other big cities, essential things that now need, and the demand should be, to have serious controls on the profiteering that can be made uh, out, of those, out of those particular goods. And the final bit is something that, again, the, the other two speakers touched on, but I want to extend a bit, which is that it's the issue of who should do this. Because we know that if you want wages to go up, historically and right now, Frankly, the best and most efficient way of trying to make that happen is be in a trade union and have that trade union be active and have that trade union, as we're seeing now on a scale we haven't seen in this country for decades, have that trade union go out and strike and demand higher wages. Like, there isn't some mechanism by which you're just going to get more money in a situation like this. It has to be a demand and you have to be organised to make that happen. But there's another part to this, which is that great chunks of people who either aren't in the union, and okay, they should be, but they aren't as yet, or they're in an industry that's unorganised, or they're people who are running a small business. People might have seen that pubs in Britain are closing at record rates over the last year because of the cost of living crisis, because a load of people don't have enough money to go to the pub, and by the way, they're going to have to spend a load more on energy bills than they used to. It's the cost of living crisis. But there's not really a union for pub landlords. There's not really a representative body like that. So if we're thinking about what the agency is to change this, we need to also think how to reach all those people beyond the ranks of the organised working class. Not just building unions in the private sector that the government is so worried about, private sector workers, but also thinking about people even beyond, you might think of workers, people who run small businesses, people who aren't necessarily immediately aligned with what you might think of as the left. How do we relate to those people? And how do you relate to them in particular 
when we're not facing just the relatively clear, I would say relatively politically clear situation where nurses have seen their pay fall in real terms for a decade, so of course they should be paid more, but the slightly harder political questions when you find that the price of petrol for your car has gone through the roof. Now in London, what, 25% of people use a car to go to work. The rest of the country, it's about 75%, because public transport's awful. We know we have to invest in public transport to fix that. But right now, people have to pay a lot of money to go to work, and they have to go to work. What is the demand? How do we get those demands where people are saying, we don't want those fuel prices to go up, but we also know, we also know in this room, that we're going to have to stop using that petrol somewhere down the line, and as rapidly as possible. We have to learn how to square those two things. And I think one of the examples here, and the way that we can take this movement on wages and on incomes and start to think about what it does for prices, is the example of the Gilets Jaunes in France, where they were confronted by this question very directly. The protests against rises, in this case, in taxes on fuel, that started off with a bunch of people who had to rely on their car or rely on driving a van, starting to protest, but then linking up with the environmental protesters in towns and cities across France. And the link was fairly simple, which is that if you are being absolutely rinsed by BP or Shell because you have to drive your car, because you have to go to work, you have to drive your van, your problem is BP and Shell profits. And if you care about the planet, because you know that fossil fuel investment is one of the things destroying it, your problem is BP and Shell profits. But the problem ultimately for all of these people are the kind of profits that are being made out of essential but very destructive industries like the fossil fuel industry. And the alliance we can start to get in this is between the organised working class and a far wider layer of people directly affected by the cost of living crisis. So I think there is a moment of hope there. I think there is a possibility of making that alliance work over this year because this crisis isn't going away. I mean, the forecast for food prices are astronomical over the next year. But there is an opportunity now on the basis of the strikes that are already happening with some political clarity about what's driving the crisis and where it's coming from, of constructing the kind of alliance that can take on the profiteering right at the top and start to present a serious alternative to the system as a whole. Thank you. Thanks very much, James. Uh, there's quite a few people standing around the back. Uh, they might not be able to see, but there are some chairs in the room. If anyone really would like to get into a chair, there's, there's plenty around. So take this opportunity to try and find one or two chairs now. Okay, uh, there's some down the front here, some in the middle. Okay, so our final uh, speaker in this section, before we, we get to some debates amongst ourselves, is, is Laura Smith uh, from the Communication Workers' Union. They're not just fighting a bitter struggle for more pay for their members, as vitally important as that is, but they're also having some fantastic thoughts uh, developing on from what James has just been talking about, wider alliances and getting out of this mess. Welcome, Laura. Thank you so much, um, Doug. Thank you. I have to say, um, I, just, I said to Doug just before I came on, so, you know, let's just go over quickly what you want me to cover. And he said, the political solutions. Now, I don't want to disappoint you, but I haven't got all of the solutions to this huge problem. I will try my best, though, Doug. 
It's a real honour, actually, to have been asked to come and speak this evening because I am no expert in this area. I would never claim to be an expert in this area. And I have long admired the work of, of these three gentlemen and, of course, Sam. So thank you for the invite, Doug. I am a good storyteller, though, so I'm going to start by just explaining kind of why I come into this place with the interest that I do. And I do actually usually avoid personal stories because I don't think it's particularly helpful in making political issues about one person. And I also hate that sort of self-indulgence that comes with it. But I do feel that my experience actually demonstrates perfectly why until we get systemic change to happen, nothing will ever really improve. So my grandfather, he was a miner in Scotland, worked his whole life in the filthy industry, and he didn't want his children to experience the same, mainly as he knew from a very young age that his lungs were knackered and would eventually fail him, as they sadly did. And so he encouraged my dad to leave, and he supported him. And my dad, he headed down to London to find his fortune. And like many at that time, in the 60s, there was an opportunity for him, an opportunity to change his stars, so to speak. And my dad started his career as a young man working in a Carnaby Street clothes shop. Probably the coolest thing he ever did, I have to say. And his journey went from there. And my father, he worked his way up through various sectors before meeting my mother and starting his family. Now, by the time that I was born in 1985, the last of four children, he had his own business and was making a good amount of money. And our house on the outskirts of Crewe, where I was born, was one that he had never dreamt of. He had done it all right. He'd escaped poverty, created a new life. But that escape from poverty rarely really happens when you are working class. And that's the bit he was failed to have been told. It hangs over your shoulder. And sadly, neoliberal policies, Thatcher and the economic crisis at the time meant that my father, overworked, under pressure, became very, very seriously ill. And then the rug was pulled from under him, under us, and we found ourselves as a family of six with nothing. No nice home, no money, no work, insecurity of going from one home to the next on temporary rentals, all whilst my father was terribly, terribly ill. He worked himself practically to death in this system. Now, the difficulty that I saw my parents experience during this time, it will never leave me. The social isolation as friends dropped them, watching my mother calculating the cost of every little thing that went into her trolley, having to put stuff back when she reached the checkout, and the fact that birthday presents sometimes just wouldn't make it. I was 12 when we were housed in a council home, and I was already pretty battered by life. Anxious and depressed. I was always worrying. I was worrying about my parents, I was worrying about my future, I was embarrassed by my clothes, I was embarrassed by my home, but mainly I was really, really angry. I was angry that my parents had done everything that was possible to do in so-called bloody social mobility, 
as some would say. And from then on, I would have to fight extra hard for every opportunity that I saw come much, much easier, and I don't begrudge them of it to my friends from more middle-class families. Now, by the time that I qualified as a primary school teacher, I was exhausted. It was harder for me to do all the things like learn to drive, get to work, be educated, travel, go on nights out, all of it harder because I was poor. More debt than my friends, no safety net, worry all the time, and this continued to pile up. Harder to save, impossible to get a mortgage, difficult relationships where money was always an issue, easily controlled and manipulated. And the mental health implications took it out on me, especially when I started my teaching career. Now, fast forward 10 years, and the strangest thing happened. Somehow, as an activist, a grassroots activist, I managed to find myself in Parliament. I still don't know how it happened, but it was amazing that it did. And what an incredible experience. And really, I was, in 2017, I could have been the poster girl uh, for Labour at that time. I wasn't. They went with uh, Rosie Duffield, I believe. Don't think it worked out that well. <laughs> I was inspired by the policies of Labour. And at that time, I fought as an activist for all the children that I had taught and all of those who were to come who were getting the sharp end of austerity. And I just want to say, I've said this story a few times, I will never forget at fruit time once when I had a class of five and six-year-old children and one child, as she was going out to play, she reached into the bin and she picked out a discarded apple core. And she did it because she didn't know when she would next be eating. And I looked at that and I thought, I can't believe how far backwards we are travelling. So as a grassroots activist, I stood at that election, I managed to win. As I say, knocked down the doors of Parliament. First time I ever walked into Parliament, I was the MP for Crewe and Nantwich, my hometown, full of hope that I could finally be the voice for the working class. Yeah, the rest is history. Now I tell this story not meaning to be self-indulgent, but to make the point that in this economic model, no one like me, probably like you, will ever actually win. Today's economy is an economy for the few. I call it, it's the economy of the SPIV and the privateer. Our current economic model is extractive. It's designed to benefit only the wealthy, to enable them, the financial and economic elite, to trap maximum gain for themselves in every possible way, and we see this extractive economy operating all around us, with the rip-off energy bills being the most obvious at the moment. And the runaway wealth at the top of our society it isn't an accident, and it's certainly not part of the rising tide that will lift all boats up as trickle-down economic doctrine once promised. Instead, today's wealth concentrated at the top is achieved directly at our expense the logical consequence of an extractive economy at work. And the, the economic rulers of our world, they make their money not by producing goods and services that, that are useful to others, but by their ownership of assets, of capital, of the economy itself. We have landlords and property developers controlling land. We have energy companies controlling our natural resources. We have banks controlling our money supply, 
CEOs earn more from stock options than they do from their basic salaries. Our economy is built around the battle to control assets. And this isn't about producing new wealth. Instead, it is purely about the extraction of wealth from other people in the economy. And against all this, there has to be a real fight back. And that doesn't just mean a change of government. It means a change of economic model. For in this current economy, our class enemies are always in power. Whether or not they're in government, they are in power because they are in power in the institutions of the economy. The banks, the corporations, the capital markets. They run them, and therefore the house always wins. And if we are to change that, to change outcomes, to make it so that the people win and not just the house, we have to change institutions and change relationships within the economy. People are at the mercy of the indifferent markets and distant corporations, and they are crying out for democratic control of our communities and our local economies. And I think that this push has to come from rebuilding the trade union movement, with activists across unions working together and building at the ground in communities. We need more strike action with bigger numbers. But those striking workers, as Sam said, they need support. It's not easy to strike, and the emotional drain should never be underestimated. No one, however, should lose a second of sleep over whether or not their pay rise will cause prices to rise. UK bank executives earn in the range of 3.6 million per year, and the CEO of Shell took home more than 6 million just last year. Boris Johnson, he's already making millions, I believe, off book deals and speaking engagements in the months to come. Do you think that they ever worry for a second about how that affects inflation? They don't, and neither should those taking action now. So what is the best way to secure the future of you and yours, me and mine? How do you ask for a pay rise? You do it collectively through a trade union. And how do you make sure you don't just work, work, work until you die, let alone be killed at work or see years of your life taken away for you, from you like my father did? You join a union. Now, those who are trying to divide working class sectors, they should admit they haven't got a clue about solidarity. And that is what terrifies them. And however much they try and make conditions for unionising difficult through insecure work, union busting, legislation, people will need to and will find new ways to organise and demand better. And our very democracy will be better for it. Blaming workers for the crisis, burdening workers with the bills for austerity, bullying workers into submission is not an innocent error. It is a calculated, callous, conservative government trick. Let's tell it as it is. The Tories, they've crucified this country, and they have the gall, the audacity, the brass neck to tell us that there's no alternative. But there is. And corporate greed, Tory policy, and the right-wing press are the bane of our lives. We have the effective trade unions. 
We have communities sticking together. We have to step up to fight for the social justice and we can be the engines of progressive change. And we need the strong trade unions at the heart of that. There aren't any easy, quick solutions to this. I wish that I could tell you that there were, but this will take hard work and dedication from every single person in their communities, within their trade union. We have to politically build around the solutions for a fairer economy. We need to link up with like-minded people so that we are pulling together where decent practice is happening, where we know that change is occurring. And it is, believe me, I've gone and spoken to so many local councillors, local communities who are doing bits and pieces despite the fact that we have this Tory government. We need to grow that. But we have to be in our communities and we have to be offering change because I don't want to leave on too much of a depressing note, Doug, but if I speak just briefly about where I am from, a place that I love, a place where I love the people in Crewe, I can tell you right now, the far right are there. They are there and they are trying to offer their solution to what this problem is. And it's wrong and it's vile and it's hate-filled, but it's there. And we have to very quickly start being brave, reaching out, educating, talking, communicating, coming at the level that people are at and going and having conversations. So I propose that one of the things that should happen is you three lovely gentlemen should go on tour around the UK with this book and come and visit towns all over and talk to them, hold the meetings like this, because people really need to start hearing the solutions everywhere. So thank you very much for having me. I love the fact that the book is small as well. As a mother of two, I can read that rather than these huge books that you get. Um, and I'm really looking forward to the debate and hearing what some of the solutions that you might have could be. Thank you. What a fantastic way to end the uh, platform contributions. Now, it's, it's over to us all here. Remember, there's no such thing as a stupid question. And also remember that uh, the longer your contribution, the less other people can contribute themselves. So it's not so democratic to speak for a long, long time. Hank. Uh, there's a microphone coming round. A brilliant, brilliant meeting. Thank you very much for all, to all concerned. Um, five pound book, what a blinking idea. Uh, I was going to get one book, but obviously I can get four now and I might be inspired to get eight and give it to everyone for a Christmas present or even just give it to them because they should read it. So that, that's excellent. My son is in the, in the post office. It is the greatest thing of pleasure for me, sorry, his entire life that he's been part of that recent vote. That is better, sorry, it's better and stronger than the 80s. I lived through the 80s uh, and, the, and indeed the 70s and there's never been a better time for the working class in this country ideologically than now. We're in a position of complete change and what it's going to retire, what it's going to re, re, uh, sorry, need is a different social system that means the overthrow of the present lot 
and their replacement by the working class in an organized way. And this is closer than it's ever been before. And your book, I think, is going to help. And it's never been needed as much as now, never in our history. So thanks very much indeed. And I'm sure we're going to be up to this and inspired by you to go at it even harder now. Thank you. Thanks, Hank. Got one here in red, one behind you, and one there. Uh, the brother down the front here. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for these really inspiring uh, talks, all of them. Uh, so I very much agree with all your um, proposals. Um, look for any opportunity to build movements like the Gilets Jaunes. Build, join your union and build union power. Um, win, all, win as much as we can in these strikes, which didn't cost us in my union this week. The UCU means also taking on the union leadership because the mood music is that they're trying to sell us out on, on this one. So join your union, build the strikes. Rent controls, price controls, tax the rich. Um, all of these form a very persuasive, coherent package. But what, do we, what does one say then about high politics, um, party politics, and so on, because, um, because obviously Keir Starmer's Labour Party is not gonna go near any of these policies. Union power, no. Tax the rich, no. Rent control, no. Price control, oh my lord, that means affecting the profits of the companies. We're not gonna go there. So Keir Starmer's um, party is absolutely diametrically opposed to the, the, the policies you're proposing, and I agree with the policies you, that you're proposing. So where does that leave us, therefore, in respect to this question? Thank you. Uh, because Keir Starmer is going to say, you know, everything you're proposing smells of J J JC and, and that McDonald guy. Uh, and it does. Okay. And you're right to. I agree with you on it. But what do you say? Thanks for that. We'll stack some questions up. The, 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 the gentleman behind you there. Um, Paul Simmons here. Um, yes, it's really a, a, a bit more of an economics question. Um, but I think if we just roll back about um, six months ago, or even two months ago even, I think most people were expecting, you know, people on the left anyway, that the, with the, um, also the drop in um, uh, output, the drop in GDP nationally, which Britain is just about the lowest in Europe, that we were heading for, not just for a recession, but a major depression. And that, um, you know, very, very quickly, we would see unemployment massively rise. But that doesn't seem to have happened. And I think it surprised quite a lot of us. Now, what I want to know is what, you know, uh, Costas and you, James, think of that in terms of, is it just been delayed? Are we going to get it a little bit later on? Or um, can, you, can you, is it shallow? Or what, what's, what's going on? And uh, coupled with it, just one little extra bit, is that, of course, I completely agree with what the speaker said about um, the fact that, um, uh, you know, we need to organise and unionise and the rest of it. Well, the best way to smash unions is to create massive unemployment because, you know, that, that, that just breaks it, like, exactly like Thatcher did. So, again, can we expect the government to implement policies that deliberately create unemployment? Thank you. And uh, just opposite, on the aisle there. Hiya, thanks for that. Um, just wanted to ask, so I, I don't work in a, I work in the private sector. How do you, how do you advise people who work in the private sector to, to organise? What can you do apart from, say, I don't know, donating to, to, to unions or, or things along that, that nature? Thanks. Okay, thanks very much. That's, is there anyone else at this stage? Yeah, I've got uh, one at the very front here. Um, 
I mean, what's being proposed is obviously a massive break with uh, what we would you know, term sort of treasury orthodoxy in this country. Um, the thing is, we have actually had one of those uh, in the very recent past. It wasn't one that anybody in this room would have agreed with. But, I mean, the whole reason why um, Liz Truss's administration lasted effectively a month uh, was essentially that she broke with Treasury orthodoxy in the opposite direction um, and was then very uh, heavily punished. It was almost kind of an economic siege against this country uh, by, you know, by, by the institutions of, of uh, sort of international uh, big capital. Um, we can only assume that something similar would happen if we did have... Uh, uh, a government trying to make a break that we would like to see um, fr fr from the uh, from the norms that the that the men in grey suits uh, advocate. Um, what strategies would be needed to resist such a thing? Very good question. I'll take those four, and then we'll come round again. So, Costas, do you want to have a go at the four? I mean, I can I can talk about these things for a long time, but I won't um, because I'm <laughs> going to get on with it. Um, let me take the question, first of all, about what was expected and what was actually delivered. Yeah, there was talk about a massive recession, depression, and so on. But that's what I just said. The state intervened, and intervened in an unprecedented way. I th I, I, and people should understand the magnitude of the intervention by states in core countries. It's unprecedented. And it rests on their ability to command money. Uh, I mean, you're talking floods of money. The creation of money doesn't, it's not, doesn't create price increases, but it supports demand. Right? So basically what happened is the state intervened and boosted demand. It, 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 it spent fiscal deficits increased, it created money and so on, that boosted demand, and basically that prevented the, the recession. But it led to inflation. It led to inflation because the productive structure could not keep up with that. So basically you have... You're pumping demand into the system, the supply cannot do it, and you end up with price, prices edging up. And companies make hay when that happens. They make profit, they take it out of your pocket, into the pocket of the capitalists. That's basically what happens. Now, does this mean that there's not going to be a recession ahead? No, because the supply side still is not responding. We're looking at growth prospects for the coming decade, which are worse than the previous one. In other words, the long this interregnum that we're going through, this inability of the system to, 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 to grow rapidly is not going away. The, 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 the growth projections for this country in the decade ahead are appalling. So what will happen is they raise interest rates. What will happen is they apply austerity to deal with inflation. We don't know. We will see. And in developing countries where debt has accumulated the last couple of years, the ability to pay back debt as interest rates are going up is very, very... Uh, problematic. So a crisis might burst out from there. In other words, it's highly unstable. They've dealt with the shock. They've gone over the bump. They've ended up with inflation, globally, I mean, but it doesn't look good. There's no stability. There's no growth. There is no, it's not happening uh, across the core. So that's the best answer I can, I can give for that. Now, come to the question about Liz Truss, because I think that's a very, very... Uh, uh, topical thing. I'll, I'll only talk about that and then others can take other points. Um, this is a very important lesson, the trust lesson, because obviously she tried to do it from the right. She tried to do Thatcherism on steroids, basically, at the wrong moment, because the, the Thatcherism 40 years ago was about attacking the working class because the 
the capitalist class basically thought they would squeeze and reverse all the gains of the previous period. That's not what's happening at the moment. That's not the issue for the capitalist class. So the problem was the financial interest, because this country is financialized, this is financialized neoliberal capitalism, the financial interest was horrified. And it was horrified because what they want is to control inflation. Inflation, you see, might favor profits of big businesses, but for the lender, inflation is dangerous. For the lender and for the financier, inflation is dangerous because it destroys the value of debt. So if you're a banker, or if you're a shadow banker, or if you're one of these speculators and inflation goes up, your money is in trouble, potentially. You don't want it. You want to restrain it. You want interest rates to go up to squeeze inflation out. Please trust threaten that. And the city of London came out and said, we're not going to have it. And the Bank of England um, went along, basically, and served the interests of the city, and she was out within a few days. What do you do then against that? You intervene. You intervene and you nationalize. You impose controls. You impose controls on capital exports. You impose controls on banks. You appear as a state, not only to rescue them when they're in trouble, but to tell them what to do or not to do. Because the state can do it. And the reason why it doesn't happen is because the state doesn't want to do it. When they want, they can do it. Of course, if that happens, the class balance of this country will be challenged. Because this is a class issue. And that's why it's not happening. Which is what we're talking about here. If you want to change things, you've got to alter the class balance. This, this ain't going to be a tea party. This will not be a walk in the park. Right? But if you want to do it, if you want to shift policy towards the interests of working people, that's what you've got to confront. Public banking, controls over capital exports, controls over the city of London. Difficult questions. And we need to open up that discussion. We need to consider it. Will the Labour Party do it? <laughs> no. Of course not. No. Of course. Of course it won't do it. We, 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 need, we need to act as the, as the people who will bring that kind of debate to the forefront, to, to put these things on the, on the table and to start creating um, the alliances and the forces that are necessary to bring that change about. It's not going to happen otherwise. Forget it. No one is going to do it um, for other people's benefit. We've got to do it ourselves. That's what's ahead of us. Thanks, Costas. James? Yeah, I'll... Pick up on that. I mean, uh, I, I agree, Costas, obviously, to a large extent, and then I'll try some of the bits where perhaps there's a slight element of disagreement just to, you know, have some fun with this, I suppose. Um, on, on the, look, I agree with you completely about the, the Labour Party in particular. I think there's been far too much over the last couple of years of uh, looking back to what happened between 2015 and 2019 and saying, oh, that's gone, wasn't it sad, isn't it sad it's gone, isn't, isn't Keith Starmer, as, as is popularly known, um, a terrible, uh, you know, and, and you can spend a great deal of time doing this and it's completely useless. We're in a different world now. Right? That moment with Jeremy Corbyn has been and gone. We've gone through, I mean, just think of what's actually happened since then, by the way. COVID, most obviously, and then we smack into this cost of living crisis, and then you've got also the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, and then you've got what's going to come this year, I think, is a crisis in food, and food prices in particular, and then you're going to run into a whole load more instability uh, down the line. There's no point all us going around saying a period of actually, actually relative stability, which is 2015 to 19, is not one that is very useful to think about when you're addressing what happens now. So in terms of what we do, it is what we do, not what the Labour Party does. 
And in terms of what the Labour Party does, I'm always reminded, or not always reminded, I try not to be reminded uh, about it too often, but the education secretary that opened more comprehensive schools than any other education secretary before or since was Margaret Thatcher between 1970 and 1974. Did Margaret Thatcher particularly want to do that? No, not really. Was she under pressure from the left to do that? Yes, that's why these things change. Governments move when pressure is applied to them. That applies to a Labour government, to a Tory government. And the question for us is how do you best apply that pressure? And that starts to look like, you know, if you want the Labour Party policy to change on picket lines, on supporting unions, and you, by the way, you can see it inching that way, you need strikes, and you need those strikes to start to work and to win, and you need people to support those strikes, and then lo and behold, the Labour Party comes lumbering along behind at some point. That's how the mechanism works, and that's how you need to uh, think about it. Just on the specific, just on quickly on this one question on what happened with unemployment, which I'll tie into the, the sort of broader issue. Uh, no, I'll just, I'll just do the unemployment and what happened there. Look, the... There were some very big predictions about what was going to take place with, with COVID. And if you remember, there, there were a similar set of predictions about what was going to happen with the uh, financial crisis in 2008. Predictions of unemployment going through the roof, Great Depression, all that sort of thing. These things didn't happen for some of the reasons that, that Costas touched on, which is that there was just massive intervention by the Bank of England in particular through quantitative easing to sort of set a floor to what was going to happen there. That's one part of it. The other part of it is something that's quite dramatic, which is we're all seeing the effects of now, if you have to go out to work and get paid, uh, that we have very peculiar labour markets in Britain. They like to call it flexible. It's actually flexible for whoever's employing you, not so flexible for you, and you have to do what you're told. And instead of having this response to a slump in demand, to a big shock in the economy where unemployment goes through the roof, we've ended up with actually employment still stays quite high, but all the jobs are crap and everybody's paid less and less, right? So instead of seeing unemployment go up, you just get loads of crap jobs instead. That's quite striking. That is what happens in Britain. It's still ongoing now, except the range of crap jobs through the cost of living crisis is extending to pretty well everyone except like the top 10% or so. So that's the mechanism that we start to see uh, happening here. The final bit, I think, is, is also, look, th this crisis doesn't end. Uh, I think you have to, we have to try and frame this not as like, this is an economic crisis, the like of which we have got used to over two centuries, not even we've been around for two centuries, but two centuries of capitalism, where you have an economic crisis and the environment is just this thing in the background. It is now an environmental and ecological crisis combined with an economic crisis. And the economic crisis we might be able to deal with in some uh, senses. The ecological crisis, I'm afraid, is a really deep fundamental problem that is now going to take decades to resolve if it will get resolved at all. So this is a very, very serious and fundamental problem for all of us, which is likely to define what happens from now until the rest of, rest of our lives. And in a situation like that, I mean, who cares what Keir Starmer thinks, right? This is a bit bigger than what the Labour Party is doing. We have to think in these, these terms and on that scale if you want to get serious about how you change the world. Laura. Yeah, I think most of the points that I was going to um, raise have been covered, and I, d I do agree. I'm a Labour councillor, and I have to have to say, um, not much of my personal time is spent worrying too much about the Labour Party as a whole. I kind of am always thinking, how can I, how can I operate and do the best for my community despite. <laughs> <laughs> Labour Party. I'll probably get an email in the morning. Um, but 
basically, I just don't let the, my energy go there. But I do also don't let the hope and the vision and some of those solutions disappear either. And I think this is where kind of organizing within our communities is so important because a lot of the solutions were there. They need to be further developed and added on 100%. We are in a different situation, but we can't just kind of let ourselves move into a place where we're not going to fight for nationalization anymore, et cetera, et cetera. We have to stay firm with that. On the um, person who mentioned about organizing within the private sector. I mean, I'm happy to have a conversation with you after, but also, firstly, it's finding out if there is a union and what unions are operating in that organisation, because there probably, though there will be. Um, it's then talking to your colleagues and kind of having those conversations about the things that impact us all. I think sometimes if we go straight to pay, it can become quite... Oh, but if you talk about the fact of the cost of living crisis, you talk about holidays coming under attack, terms and conditions being impacted, um, you can kind of find out what you mutually are, are there in the same space with and start to start organising. I personally believe, you, as a grassroots organiser by nature, I believe you, I organised everywhere. I organised on school gates, picking my kids up with mums. I've organised in cafes. I organise everywhere that I go, having those conversations, those honest ones. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's finding out if there is a union there. Um, but also, it was the comment I think that was made before, the nature of work has changed too. And we have to change with that. And the trade union movement has to change with that too. And we have to try, it's easier said than done, but we have to try and think how we can branch out into insecure work. In, because, of course, the government's strategy is to make as many people either self-employed or on low-paid um, work where, you know, they, they're not going to be able or they won't think about joining a union. We need to think about how we are going to, as a movement, tackle those problems. And those conversations and that debate has to start now. There's not a magic wand that is going to come along and, and give us all the answers. Um, I think... I think everything else was covered, wasn't it, Doug? I think so, Laura. Thanks very much indeed. So let's have some more questions and contributions. Sister there, at the front. Hello. Thank you so much for this talk. And it's nice to see Kostas, because he's one of the people that inspired me when I was at SOAS. Um, and James as well. So I, I'm, I work at the New Economics Foundation. I'm a community organiser working across London on a housing campaign. Um, I hear a lot about grassroots campaign and this is sort of the work that I'm doing. Um, my goal is, um, actually before I say that, um, the people that I meet every day in council housing and um, housing associations talk about um, the mental and physical health issues that they face. I've seen kids just yesterday living in mold infested rooms, a coughing continuously, um, not using their bedroom because um, they feel scared about worsening their health conditions. Just this woman who we organised with has got 18 months to live because for 20 years she lived in a horrible housing condition with mould and damp and the doctors have said that you haven't got long to live for 20 years and she's come to us to organise and build a charity so it doesn't happen to anyone else. We already have heard about Awabishak in, in the news. Um, I still wonder what does the government what does the government mean by time limits? I mean, what does that 
because you know they've said that they they're, they're putting a time limit on landlords but would that be two weeks two months people are really desperate to know the answers my goal um is to bring out this book or bring out this talk, not just in, in, in our little circle, but to communities, to the girl that I was talking about in her council block, to the woman who's dying in 18 months, and how do we build that people power movement? Because for me, there's three groups here. One is the lower working class that we have always kind of been there, and people have said they're just lazy or benefits grounded. The second is the what's the, what Marks termed the petty bourgeois that are struggling as well, and the third is the newer, the new middle layers, the managerial level who are struggling as well. Some of my friends after SOAS, and I was sort of part of that as well, decided that we should go into the corporate world because that's the way we'll make it, and soon realised that actually <laughs> that's not the way. So I stuck to community organising. But um, it's how do we build coalition in these three classes, and. Um, and in simple language as well. So the question here, sorry, is that will you be interested in working with me in, my, in the communities I work with across London to bring this book, to bring this talk to the doorsteps in council housing um, uh, blocks or in uh, local town halls so we can really build a momentum, not to get a Labour government, to actually get, a, to get our class interest and, and to get our demands heard. Thank you. Thanks very much. Two at the front here. Three. Um, thank you. Uh, Costas made some very um, radical uh, proposals in his opening uh, when he identified the problem as being a lack of supply. And he talked about the need for more investment. Now, this is a long-standing problem in Britain. When I worked uh, in a factory in 1966, uh, I worked a press which had been built in 1904, which coincidentally was the same year my grandfather joined the Labour Party. Well, the Independent Labour Party, as it was then. Um, my point is, is how do we get, we need to discuss how we're going to get this massive investment that we need. If we could have that investment, we could reconstruct... British engineering, and if we could do that, we could provide millions of proper jobs where you work for seven hours, eight hours a day, um, five days a week, maybe we could bring down the working week, uh, and uh, producing things which would then be consumed by people in this country. This would be uh, a way of doing this. But as far as I can see... Um, there's a great, been a, a historic reluctance of British capitalists to invest in Britain. Maybe they did it in the 19th century, but by the, uh, the middle of the last century, they basically lost interest. Um, and that was one of the reasons for the decline of British manufacturing, British shipbuilding, uh, all these different areas. So um, that means state-directed investments, something... Keynes was in favour of, incidentally. But given the nature of the state as it is, I don't trust the state to do that investment. Um, these people in the Treasury who, who say they want to limit wage rises to 5%, why aren't we saying, sack all these people in the Treasury, get rid of them and get some people who are in favour of our interests? 
the head of the Bank of England, whoever he is at the moment. Get rid of him and these advisers. We need to put forward political demands about the nature of the state. The state needs to change. If we can change the state, we can exercise our power through the state, we can start to get the sort of policies we need uh, that are going to solve the problems that we've been talking about, the cost of living. Thank you. Thank you. Um, can I next to you there? Next there. Next there. So I come from a rural background, and I really appreciate the point that Laura made right at the end about how outside of London, I think there is a serious crisis of hope. I think people are feeling very, very, very left behind. So I have a quite simple question. Is that how you plan to engage those people and actually get them to believe that there is seriously something left for them in this country? Because this problem they've been facing has been, as Costa said, since the 1980s, they have been slowly and slowly <coughs> falling further behind the rest of us, especially... London. I, I don't know how those people really see a way forward anymore. Okay, thanks. I think um, one at the end there. Now, we've got quite a few more, but time's a bit limited, so I, I'll take the three other hands I can see if people promise to be really short. Um, I, got, I just wanted to make a few, a few points and a question. Short points. One is, yeah, yeah. One is, um, I think this is not just about a cost of living crisis, it's a living crisis. When you talk to nurses, doctors, a lot of people, they are stressed beyond words. And they will say to you, they're not going on strike purely for a question of money, they're going on strike because of all the other issues that they're being faced with. Um, and just on that point, the doctors, just to correct uh, Sam... Uh, the doctors voted 98% in favour of a strike on a 77% turnout, yeah. which is one of the highest of all the unions. Um, a very quick question is about how we reverse privatisation. Costas just mentioned we need to nationalise, but it wasn't mentioned by the other speakers, and I just wanted to say price controls can be easily implemented through nationalisation. It's much harder to implement price controls outside of that. And on the Labour Party, I just wanted to say... Um, in 1926, which is the closest equivalent to what we're going through now, the Labour Party was not galvanised and followed behind what the trade unions were doing. They worked to undermine it. Um, so I think, you know, we have to be very careful about the Labour Party. Thanks. Could the people put their hands up again so I can just catch them? There's um, two over there, Maria. Two over there. Yeah, mine's just a quick question um, for a quick request for more detail on the potential pitfalls and how to avoid them of price controls. I understand that's the essential thing you have to do in conjunction with wage increases. Um, but but uh, we do occasionally hear about price controls, they're very rarely on the news, and it's usually a, 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 like a, a problematic example, like Venezuela, um, which is obviously a very different economy. Um, uh, so, so a bit more detail on that and, and how we avoid um, issues with that, including a, a, you know, a, a, a financial reaction or, or a, you know, a macroeconomic reaction uh, would, would be helpful. Thanks. Thanks. And the sister behind you. Um, mine's quick as well. Um, so we have a moment that's quite amenable to worker power, tight labour markets, supply chain disruption, high inflation... Um, I'm kind of interested in terms of whether you think that this is time-limited and unions, unions have to kind of strike while the iron is hot, figuratively and literally, um, or whether you think that um, if and when this changes, that changes the nature of the strike wave. 
Okay, and there's two over here. And that's it, folks. Um, Costas, you mentioned that when prices go up, the big businesses can just raise their prices, but the small to medium ones, not so easy for them. Um, I'm wondering if this is related to what's happening industrially, because I can't help but notice there has been a series of small disputes, medium-sized disputes, where businesses are folding and workers are winning 10%, 18%, you know. I think there might be something going on there that in the private sector, in the smaller companies, uh, that we could leverage and that might be significant. Thank you. And the final one, just in front there. If you could just put your hand up so Maria can see. Thanks. Uh, hi, my question is uh, mainly for James. I wanted to ask more about the idea of being the working class uniting with the um, climate movement because nowadays, obviously, there's greenwashing. Everyone claims to be pro-environment. And obviously, the gilets jaunes and the yellow vests were very different than, let's say, in comparison to the Extinction Rebellion. So could you maybe develop that further in terms of which part of the climate movement do you think that there could, they, you know, could be amenable to allying with, you know, the working class. And obviously, there, uh, do you see any parts of the, you know, climate change movement which might be actually antithetical to working class interests or might be looking for a solution which obviously the capitalists would prefer? Okay, thanks. So some tremendous questions and points at the end, um, which we'll try to get in bearing time in mind. So, Laura. Right, there was loads there, so apologies for anything that I do miss. Um, first of all, with uh, the grassroots organising and community organising around um, rentals and, and bad houses, you know, well done for doing that. This is the hard work that needs to be happening. And of course, in any way I can help and join up. Um, and I think it's kind of housing is, is just, there's so many different levels of why this is a problem. The problems that are in London might be different to the problems that are in my community in Crewe, but there are huge, huge problems here. And the fact is that having a safe home now is becoming a luxury. It's just ridiculous in this bidding market, etc. So I think that that is a key area to be organising around. Um, just to kind of cover a few of the comments that have been made, and I guess it comes down to, again, how we build political pressure, really, for the change. And some of the work that Doug and I have been doing um, within the unions is trying to think about how we can bring together the ideas and the solutions that fantastic people um, like Costas and James have and debate, how we can bring those together so that we can start bringing that into the trade union movement as well, so that the academics um, can join the trade unions, how we can communicate that message on the picket lines, how we can actually have conversations in, um, you know, in, in ways that people can understand. Because certainly for me, kind of, I, growing up, would never have thought that I would be sitting having this kind of discussion at this kind of level. I'm not an expert, as I say. So we have to come up with the, the um, solutions of how we can engage more and more people and get them to realise that these conversations about the economy aren't really difficult and they are for ordinary people and it is their voice that matters. Um, 
I think kind of building coalitions within community um, is, is so key. And I'll keep going on about it. I want to see the town hall style meetings that Bernie Sanders did when he was going to the Rust Belts and uh, having those chats. That needs to happen. It doesn't also, I want to make this point, it doesn't have to have kind of people who have a profile being the people who talk at those. If you can organise within your community a meeting on the cost of living and you have key people who are doing things within that area to talk about their experience, that, is, that will relate far more to the people in that room than getting people who, you know, like me or whoever, you know, it's better to have people who are on the, on the ground organising in those spaces. So we need to do much, much more about that. Um, yeah, it's a wages and earnings crisis that we're experiencing. And I think that we have to... We, we do have solutions. I firmly believe that. I think that we lack confidence at the moment. And I think that is what needs to change. And that's where we're in this kind of continual cycle with the national political party um, and national politics and we need to somehow get it into a more local level i think quite a lot can actually be changed at a, a local government level but we have to kind of build that pressure within our communities to try and see where the levers of power are where we can start reaching in and making small changes it's happening in places already it happened in north ayrshire it's happened in preston it's happening in areas of wales it's happening in parts of scotland it's happening you know Bits and pieces are happening in the northwest. We need to link all of that up so we can share that practice and piece by piece build the pressure and then be able to turn around and say, well, this is what's working. This is working in the interests of that community. They can't argue with it. Politicians are fickle creatures. They'll move with the way that the boats will go. But in order to get the people into that place, we have to do the hard graft of going out, talking to people, educating them, working with them, getting them to see that there is an alternative in their language, in their time, um, because people are stressed, they're time poor, they're overworked. So going down to picket lines, having those conversations there, that's the meet people in their own space. I haven't covered everything, sorry. My notes are terrible. Uh, very difficult with the number of questions. James? Yeah, the number and also the, sort of the, the depth of it. So I'll, I'll do what I can with that. Um, the, the first one sort of on nationalisation, just, just very quickly on this. I think we, we have to see this crisis as beyond anything we've realistically experienced for generations. Um, and the reason I say that is because it is fundamentally an ecological crisis. And it's an ecological crisis in the sense that some of the basic requirements of how you get a modern society to work are being challenged by it. And you can see that quite dramatically in the energy price spike over the last uh, year or so. Basic requirement in modern society that you'll be able to use transport and keep your home warm has been fundamentally challenged by what's happened with the price of energy. I think we're going to see something similar. And the forecasts are, are horrendous on what's likely to happen to food supply over the next year, partly in consequence for all the extreme weather last year and the disruptions to fertilizer production, for example, is that, you know, you're looking at, on the UN forecasts, uh, hundreds of millions of people facing starvation over the next year or so. That this is the ecological crisis. Our version of that is very dramatic increase in the price of staple foods. That's the ecological crisis. Now, when you're in a situation like this, 
what you start to see happening is that the state has to intervene on some level. So the question of nationalisation, you suddenly have a Tory government in the middle of uh, the pandemic and COVID is all but nationalising the railways because you have to keep the railways running. You find, by the way, the same Tory government has nationalised a steel producer uh, because they want to make sure that it's not exposed to shocks on uh, global supply uh, of the kinds that they're now worried about. This is already happening. The bit that we need to get to is on whose terms is that happening? Because it's kind of nationalisation where you nationalise for a bit and then desperately try and sell off again. Bulb was nationalised but they're desperately trying to sell uh, this energy supplier off again. So it's a question of on whose terms. And that's a political issue about us saying what we want out of the nationalisation. For example, price controls, which, by the way, you don't need to nationalise to have a price control. You can just have the government write a law, I mean, fundamentally, write a law that says you will not charge more than this. That's your price control. If you charge more than this, you go to prison. That's your price control. And we have a price control, a huge one in this country. Almost certainly not noticed it because it's not actually very good. It's very expensive and not very good. But it's control on the price of domestic energy, introduced in one of Liz Truss's only contributions to, to anything, as it turns out, was to introduce the energy price guarantee. Total cost forecast by the Treasury of 150 billion pounds to stop prices, not to bring them down, to stop them going up even more astronomically for domestic energy users. That's the price control. We never ever call it this. It's not really polite for the Conservative Party to admit they've introduced the biggest single price control this country has seen since the 1970s, but that's what they did. And we can take a principle like that and say, do it better, and apply it to different things that matter, like rent, for instance, seems like a very, very obvious uh, case for making sure that this happens. And you can think of a few staple products where you might want to do that. On food, you want to probably get to the wholesale point, to get further down the food chain to make that happen. But you can start to do this, and these are the demands that, that start to make sense. Now, just on your question at the front, and, and I'll finish on this sort of bit, which is, uh, that's all, we can have a fairly abstract conversation about economics and what's happening and, you know, the rate of profit and God knows what else. How do you get it to a simple language, I think, is critical. And then what do you do once you've got there? Why did we have an energy price guarantee introduced by this Conservative government, by, you know, this, this free marketeer with this colossal intervention against the free market? The reason she was doing it is very simple. You can go to Open Democracy and dig out the report of a meeting between, at the time, the Secretary of State for Business and Energy, Kwasi Kwarteng, and the uh, major energy companies. And the energy companies, the energy suppliers, were saying that the threat of non-payment represented an existential threat to their business model. That if enough people didn't pay their gas and electricity bills, they'd be out of business. An existential threat. And where did that existential threat come from? Basically, it comes from the organisation around Don't Pay UK in particular. The simple demand that a load of people will just say, we will just not pay our bills uh, in October unless you do something. So the government has to do something. They had to move. It was a simple, clear, effective demand. And the final bit, and this is not such a positive point to end on, is just picking up in the issue around, well, you want the environmental movement to meet up with the workers' movement. You want this to happen. Of course we do. And we can all do a sort of nice happy, everyone's holding hands and singing and playing guitar and all the rest, version of this. But actually, it may not look like that. That if I see what's happening, you can just see it on the internet now, actually, all over Twitter. Uh, Oxfordshire County Council introducing a 15-minute city, which is you know, a combination of things to basically say you can walk or ride your bike 15 minutes, get to the shop, that sort of stuff. You think, okay, I mean, relatively harmless, my list of things that are going on in the world. But jumping up and down and jumping all over it, a bunch of people screaming and shouting about how it's a big World Economic Forum slash George Soros plot 
to uh, control populations and that this is about getting people out of their cars and that's what they want to do. You saw some of this, by the way, last summer when Don't Pay UK was set up by a bunch of, sort of random lefties. The far right were going mad about this. They wanted to occupy that space. They wanted to be the people saying, we're going to be protecting you against these terrible companies out there. That's where the fight starts to happen. Now, I can't give you a one-size-fits-all solution to what those fights look like, but unless we're there saying we're the people who have something to say about the shocking price increases that you face, that we're the people who will take on some of these arguments directly, not abstractly, one day we'll all have wind farms, and we should all have wind farms. One day there'll be publicly owned wind farms, and they should be publicly owned wind farms. But we'll be the people right now who say, we can control the price of this. We're going to squeeze these profits. We're going to do something and argue for something that will benefit you right now. I think that's where the nub of this sort of argument appears. Because I, I don't think otherwise, it's great, though, it's absolutely fantastic that we have a strike movement of the kind we have. And just on the workers' power thing, I think this could be the start. And the signs are that it will be the start of something much bigger than what we have because of that shift, fundamental shift in the balance of power that's taking place. But it can also go very wrong. It can go very wrong if you start to lose a political argument on the key element of what are you doing to protect working class and middle class incomes and standards of living in this country. That, I think, is the nub of the argument for the environmental movement. Thanks, James. Costas. Okay. Um, it's been a very deep and you know, penetrating discussion, really. Can I just say at the beginning, this is time for radicalism. The time for half solutions is past. This is time for radicalism. It's clear. The country needs it. The country wants it. It's asking for it. Enough is enough. You know, people say enough is enough. Well, yeah, we need radical, radical solutions. What kind? There is an environmental crisis. There is a climate problem. There is a profound problem. But it's a profound problem. But ultimately, it's also a social problem. It isn't a problem of nature per se. We have to be very clear about it. Everything goes back to social relations. We have a, an environmental and, and, and climate problem because production is run by huge businesses, agribusiness dominating vast areas of the globe, meat production, this, that, and the other. That's why we end up where we are. Unless we solve the social problem, we're not going to solve the environmental problem. Everything goes back to that. Ultimately, everything goes back to that. It's a human creation. Therefore, we need human responses to how we organize our relations in order to deal with it. What does that mean in this context? Price controls, to begin to answer some of the questions more directly, are basically a form of regulation. We're talking about regulation here. A form of regulation. And it matters because neoliberalism came to dominate the core of the Western world because of deregulation. What these people did, and I remember the time very well, Maggie Thatcher and so on, I was here, I took part in all, in all the struggles, was deregulate. In other words, let the market do it. In other words, lift controls on prices, lift controls on quantities, let the, let the market do it, right? That's what they did. They didn't stop all regulation. You mustn't think that neoliberalism is about no regulation at all. It's about not regulating prices and quantities. Other things, they continue to regulate. The state is always there. So it's regulation the way they like it, the way they want it. Regulation exists, right? For us, the question is to find regulation that has teeth. Regulation that has teeth and delivers in our interests. And that regulation means controlling price and controlling quantity because that means denying the market. That's what they don't want. And that's what we must have, denying the market. How you do it, it depends on the market. You do it differently in energy. You do it differently in food. We need to be concrete. I can't give you a straight answer. I know that regulation is necessary. 
and we see it and we argue for it and we, we have it in regulation with teeth, not what Liz Truss did only or others do only, our regulation. And we do it with teeth and we shift it in our interests. Is regulation enough? No. That's not radicalism or not sufficient radicalism. Because capitalism is also about property relations. It isn't just about regulation, who controls prices and quantities. It's about who commands the resources, who has rights to the profits, who has property rights over the resources, and who ultimately decides. Unless we come and, uh, against that and confront that, there is no radicalism. You really, we really have to deal with that. Because what has happened in this country the last 40 years is, first of all, a gigantic pilfering of, of, of public resources, where people moved in and acquired uh, privatized uh, public property, left, right, and center, center, and became very rich by, by, by doing so. And not only this, we know that the concentration of property at, at, at the moment is without precedent in the history of capitalism. How? Through shadow banking, through all the various mutual funds, which act as vast concentrators of property and possess gigantic proportions of shares and, and so on in, 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 in real resources in this country. That is to be confronted. Why? Because there can be no radical policy, the investment policy that we mentioned previously, um, the welfare provision that we also discussed, the education and so on, without confronting property rights as well. It's just not possible, I'm sorry. If you think that you can do it by not touching on that question, you're not being honest. In other words, we need to confront that and confront it as radically as possible. That's why nationalization. Nationalization is directly about that. It's about the nature of property. Who owns the resources? Who commands them? Who controls them? Uh, and that falls across the board. How we do it is a matter for debate. But unless we put it on the table again, nothing radical is going to happen. Unless we assert again that the, the social is better than the private, that the, that the collective is better than the individual, unless we state these old socialist ideas, unless we restate them confidently, nothing's going to happen. Nothing is going to happen because everything will seem like tweaking this, that, and the other. And that's what the country wants. Now, who's going to do it? I can't give you an easy answer for that, obviously, and the speakers and others have had a discussion. I can tell you this, though and from involvement in politics in this country and in Europe and elsewhere. The left is in danger of losing it. We're very close, we're an inch away. Why? Because we've forgotten how to speak the language of working people. I've said that many, I've said that many times in other, in other contexts. We've forgotten how to do it. You need two degrees to be a member of the left these days. Right? We've forgotten how to articulate in ways that people understand. We've forgotten how to connect with, uh, with what matters to them. And we don't even smell like them. You know, you don't, we, don't, we don't behave like them. And that is no good. The left, even when he got it wrong, belonged to the people. He was recognized by the people, whether they were left-wingers or not. You could be working class and be right-wing, but you'd still think the people of the left are your people. They might be a bit odd, but they're, they're your people no longer. The, the working class doesn't think that uh, instinctively anymore. That's why they're right. That's why it veers toward the right. We need to recapture that. We need to, to do whatever it takes to regain that. It's not going to happen overnight. It's because it's been a process of decades. That's why every action that has been mentioned from this panel, from the floor, is very, very important. That's what we need to do. We need to engage in this 
activity. We need to do it at grassroots, we need to do it through trade unions, through communities, we need to find coalitions and alliances between the work working class and the middle layers, the small and medium enterprises, that's what we need to do. It's a long struggle, time's up, but one has to start somewhere, and we're starting here. So. This is a very historic room. Lots of unions have been formed here. There have been lots of radical meetings held in this room. And this uh, meeting itself is part of that long radical tradition, uh, which is a very deep one in Britain. And one of my heroes was from the uh, mid-17th century, Gerard Wynne Stanley from The Diggers, who said that uh, action without thought is blind and thought without action leads nowhere. What we're trying to do in extending this political economic debate is to deepen the thought to strengthen the action that is now taking off, led predominantly by the unions, but also with many, many of the community organisations as well. There's about 6 million people organised in trade unions, about 14 or 15 million people who volunteer regularly in organised community groups, and all of those community groups together employ about 850,000 workers. The trade union movement probably only employs about 5,000. So part of the project that we're all involved in here is to reunite those two parts of the working class, those who organise in the workplace and those who organise in the community. And that's part of the contribution uh, that this new economic thinking is making we intend, we get all the economic think tanks together, Laura and myself, on a regular basis. We're trying to unite them to make sure that their ideas start to penetrate in the communities, in the workplaces, so we get more literate about these policy ideas. So there's a lot being done at the moment, and we hope that you'll join us in one way or another with those kind of activities and with, with your thoughts. Thank you for the engagement and the depth of debate that we've had tonight. But... Finally, thank the four speakers for four tremendous contributions. Thanks. Everybody.